Hey everybody, welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. I'm Dan Schwester. I'm Anna Ryan. And we are here today to talk about a really uh, difficult topic that not a lot of people want to talk about. Strap in. Um, we're going to talk about mental health and EMS and mental health in clinicians. And it's something that we don't deal with. Uh, we don't deal with it effectively and uh, it's hurting us as a profession. Not only is it hurting us as a profession, um, there are studies, quantitative studies, that have come out to tell us just exactly how much we are hurting. Um, recently, in a 2017 study, I will find out which one that is in a minute, uh, there is a 37% incidence of either attempts or successes from first responders who have you know, thought about or have actually committed suicide. So while that number isn't 50%, which is good, it's also not zero. And I think that's where our problems lie. Yeah, that's a that's a big number. It's a huge number. Um, we all know people. I mean, this is this is why this podcast is kind of really important. Um, you know, we like to have a lot of fun here, but you know, this is a serious topic. This is really causing a lot of problems, and we all know somebody. That's the scary part. We all know somebody who's who's struggling with this stuff, mm -hmm. or who has thought about doing things. Uh, we all know people who are not coping well with uh, what. You know, with the stresses of the job, the stresses of, you know, living in a world and being a clinician in the EMS world. And, you know, there are more of them out there than you think. Mm -hmm. And there's more, it's more of a, of an idea of we're not dealing well with a, a, with an industry that almost guarantees trauma. We're not, you know, we don't come to work one day and think that, you know, we're not going to see something scary. We work with scary things. Um, and it's really the combination of dealing with those traumas and our own personal lives where we're not meeting up. But I think you're right. At one point or another, everyone listening to this podcast has either heard of someone in their industry or in the, uh, you know, at their job that has committed suicide or they have themselves thought about it. Yeah, I, I think that's true. We, we both know people who have, uh, com you know, completed suicide and, mm -hmm. and you know, self-harm attempts and, you know, it, it's, it's it leaves us it really does leave a mark it, and, and it, it 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 just it it affects you you I, never you never come on the other side the same way no and i think the half the problem that we're having is the exposure that we have to any mental health awareness at all the the awareness comes up when someone has killed themselves and yeah. we're going to be we're, you know we're going to be blunt in this uh in this podcast we're going to say words like you know killed yourself suicide that kind of things because these are the things that we have to be aware of um Anyone who's been, we're on, we're in New Jersey. So there's a, a one particular site where a lot of people have started their EMS education. And if anyone here knows this person, uh, her famous phrase was, who's the most important person? Um, and the answer was always, I am. But where we fell short in that is that we never said when we were the most important person. No one has ever given us a tool or a, uh, a rubric, basically, to tell when we needed help, um, how to protect ourselves, how to look for you know these signs in our partners and our friends and our family were just important, kind of as like a an no. Abstract. It does it doesn't even factor into the education. It doesn't even factor into the job. Like when you're in training, we don't talk about this stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you do, it's in chapter one of self uh, or care and feeding of the EMT or <laughs> paramedic, whatever that chapter is. It's the first test that everybody smokes and gets a ninety-seven, and it yeah. helps you out when you. It's it's. It it's helps you out with that seventy in uh, medical emergency. <laughs> so it all balances it's out. It's called wellness. It's as yeah. like a general like statement, and it's basically four pages that says don't eat Wawa on every shift, and maybe sometimes you should run. Uh oh. 
Uh oh. Yeah. <laughs> Their mac and cheese is like on point. I'm not. I'm not kidding. But um, yeah, Wawa for those of you who are not uh, it's blessed. Like a sheet. Um, it is it is a phenomena. If you get out to the uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, East Coast area, uh, you need to you need to be a part of that. They have uh, gas and food. Yeah, that's two things. It's it's phenomenal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, it, it, you know, you bring up an important point. We bring people into this job or people come into this job to want to help people and they don't realize, you know, I don't think that we're doing a good job of kind of illustrating or training them to deal with the things they're going to see. Right. Um, you know, we talk about helping people. We talk about learning things, applying medicine, you know, all that stuff. And then they go out and they see just horrible things mm-hmm. or they see people's families at the end of, you know, where somebody's at the end of their life and it's a sudden event. And just, you know, being a witness to that devastation is really, really draining. Yeah. Um, you know, you had a blog post uh, that we that you did a while back I did. Um, that you talked about your call. Yes. And, um, you know, that was a really profound moment and, you know, for you and it, and it did affect you. It did, and it, it changed the way that I approached um, the ideal of medicine that I thought I was getting into. Uh, but it also made me realize that I had no tools to address how I was going to take care of myself. I was expected to put myself second to taking care of somebody else. So the step away that I did from the uh, first aid squad uh, that I was writing for at the time wasn't acknowledged until someone just realized I wasn't around. And at any given moment in between me leaving and me coming back, there was, you know, times where I didn't sleep. There was alcohol use, you know, I didn't dabble in drugs, which is, you know, good, I guess. Um, But, you know, the idea of, you know, hours lost of sleep and suicidal ideations and, you know, why is it that that I couldn't help somebody um, stuck with me to a point where either I was going to leave the field or... I was going to do something myself because I had taken on this responsibility and no one had told me how to deal with that when I failed because I was going to fail in that situation. There was no coming back from th- that man had was heading towards the light and there was nothing I could do about it. No, absolutely. And and that's something that I don't think we reinforce in um, EMS uh, education at all. Mm-mm. And, you know, we're just scratching the surface of it in ACLS and, you know, the, the alphabet soup courses. Alphabet soup. But, you know, there are bad outcomes. It doesn't matter sometimes. You can do everything right, and the patient's not going to get better. Right. There are, I mean, there are situations where you walk into a house, and the patient is already so far gone that no matter what tools you have in your box and you throw at them, they're not coming back. That's the way it is. Right. But we have this hero mentality, especially coming out of class uh, initially, where we are the ones who are going to save this person. And when that saving doesn't happen... How do we deal with that? And that's something, like I said, it's something that isn't addressed, um, and it it should be. There's there's self there's self assessment potential that we should be you know instituting in our own assessments for patients, where we take a step back and say, how is this you know how is this affecting me? There's you know methods that you know are being developed uh, currently that talk about you know intra crisis. There's you know someone hands you a dead baby, the first thing you should say is, how is this going to make me feel? What is it that's going to, that's going, how is this going to change how I address the situation? I'm scared. Therefore I can't talk. I feel nervous. So I shake. I can't, you know, get my questions out because I'm terrified. So at that point, we're talking more about less about cognitive, uh, intelligence and more about emotional intelligence. And we don't foster that, uh, in the education system at at all. all. Not at all. 
and and we have to if we're going to address burnout if we're going to address compassion mm-hmm. fatigue if we're going to uh, address substance abuse issues in this profession uh and they're there folks it's rampant i'm not we're not going to pull punches here everybody the vast majority of people have really negative coping mechanisms yeah we haven't taught positive coping mechanisms we haven't taught people how to deal with the the things that they're going to see like getting handed a dead baby yeah no one gets handed a dead baby in real life like in like you know everyday nine to five jobs you're bagging groceries you're not getting a dead kid dave from accounts receivable doesn't deal with that no he sure doesn't you know i mean you know he does some other stressful stuff we also deal with you know we also deal deal with being on scene of you know the deaths of our colleagues of Mm -hmm. people that are we think of as family you know we're there when the cop's shot in the head and he's yep. dying. We're there when that firefighter gets pulled out in cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. We we deal with that, you know, and we don't have a mechanism to train for that, to practice it, to deal with the situation during the incident and also after the incident. Yeah. Well, the, the idea of um, dealing with a crisis after the fact, I think, and this is my personal opinion, uh, dealing with a crisis after the fact is what's killing us because at one point or another, it's too hard. You can't talk to someone about things. You feel too isolated, that kind of thing. If you foster that kind of communication in the classroom uh, and then move that towards the rest of your practice so you always have a team dynamic, then talking about what it is that happened, making sure that you're recovering correctly, that's, you know, that's the ideal situation. The question then is in teaching these type, uh, type of uh, things or acknowledging these kinds of uh, mental health problems, are we scaring people away from the profession? Yeah, I mean, you know, nobody wants to come in to a profession where you're going to feel like you're damaged coming out. Yeah. I mean, is there something that we can, you know, I, I, I think you need to inoculate. It's like vaccinations. We have to we have to get people in this profession mm-hmm. to a point where they have they leave entry level competence should include basic coping skills. Uh, understanding of resources. Uh, how do you deal with these things? What should you be watching for? What right. should your families watch for? So then in the in aspect, then what we're doing right now is we're teaching to clean, essentially, is that we're not exposing these people to anything that they would be seeing in the uh, in the field. We don't moulage our patients. We don't moulage our, our, our educators. Um, our mannequins don't throw up or poop themselves when we're coding them because that's going to happen. Oh, yeah. Um, and we... You know, we don't actually approach anything that looks like an actual scene. So all of my students are leaving my classroom having seen a classroom and never seeing like, you know, someone screaming in your face to save their child or to, uh, you know, manage a, a trauma scene where there's so much chaos going around you that you kind of lose yourself in the uh, in the din there. So is it so at that point it's a is a teaching mechanism and not a um, or I'm sorry, it's a, it's more of a, a matter of we're not teaching correctly than we are scaring people away, I think. Yeah, we we have to fit like we have to radically change the indoctrination, the education process. Mm -hmm. We need to expose them to things. And look, a mannequin is never going to be the perfect be all and end all. No, but it's it's meant to foster technique. You need right. You need to put in we need to put in distractors when you're doing a scenario. There needs to be people there that are going to play act that are going to yell and cause problems because you see the outcome of this in the field Mm -hmm. like. You, you know, I see providers, you know, I go into a house where somebody is, you know, it's a cardiac arrest and you have a family member who's freaking out, like literally like screaming, yelling, throwing things upset. Yeah. And 
immediately what do we what do you see what the the entry level providers or the people that have not been exposed to this on a regular basis mm-hmm. they look at that as a hostile scene they they start to get panicky like yeah, we got to get out of here we got to run this is dangerous yeah it's easy to buy into the drama if you haven't seen the drama before yeah right and you know you have to see this as this is a grief response this is somebody that is not thinking clearly but that doesn't necessarily mean that there are that this is dangerous for you. Right. I mean, if he picks out, pulls out a shotgun and start waving you it around the building, run. you know, Go the other way. <laughs> yeah, it's time. Yeah. But, you know, for the most part, you know, people deal with grief. You know, this is somebody they've lived with their whole life. Mm-hmm. There's their mother. This is their, their wife. This is their daughter. This is, you know, this is the end of their world. We don't teach that. Yeah, and I think that goes back to the emotional intelligence piece, is that not only do you have to know yourself, but you have to understand how other people are going to react the, to that kind of that kind of trauma. You know, when you have, you know, the 80-year-old woman whose husband of 60 years is dead in her bed, she's going to be upset. That's right. upsetting. It's not comfortable. Right. So hearing her cry out or, you know, dealing with her emotional off-gassing that's not a great term for that but it's fine you get what i'm saying um (laughs) but dealing with that kind of thing affects you seeing someone else's tragedy unfold in front of you sucks yeah and if you can't walk away from that scene with some kind of coping mechanism then we have failed you as educators yeah i think so and we do teach clean i mean you know everybody goes oh high fidelity simulation high fidelity simulation and the people that actually do high fidelity sim laugh at you yeah because you're not no, you're sure not. You know, you drag the sim man out on the stretcher mm-hmm. and you do a couple things. And, uh, Sometimes you, know. you hit that scream button. That's too creepy. Yeah. His and lips we, don't move. I don't and like then, it. you know, we do the, you know, we do the, oh, well, we're just going to simulate this. This is simulated. This is simulated. And it turns right. out to be you're not doing anything. No, you're just, you're dealing with a mannequin on a stretcher making some noises. Yeah. Like this is not, you know, you don't have someone coming in and clawing at your back to save their father. Like and this is not a and thing. And it's funny when you see people who have trained in that environment who mm-hmm. get brought into a, an actual high f- high fidelity sim environment but they lose their minds oh they do it's fantastic oh, it's i mean it's terrible <laughs> we did a we we my my place teaches uh tecc so we teach yeah. the tactical emergency casualty care and we we mixed it up you know we it was very dry and it was very you know right but we mixed it up the last time when we did the exer you know the practical exercise and we had lights and we had sirens blaring when they went into the room and we had we had emt students who were laying on the floor screaming in pain and you know you had to put tourniquets on and you had to put chest seals on and you had to do things and and you could just see the disorientation yeah you know and we had we had people who were acting as you know law enforcement like Mm -hmm. with you know you know with nerf guns and like okay we got to go. We got to move. Go, go, go. You know, like right. amping people up really and, the pressure on. and putting the pressure on. And and it was a simulated environment. You'd be shocked. There were people that couldn't that afterwards were like uh, that we had to yeah. talk to and say, like, hey, are you OK about this? Like what happened? But that's where it should happen. Yeah. I want them to have that breakdown while they're with me. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that if there is a situation like that, and there has been, you know, all over the country, we can talk about whatever news headline you want to at one point or another. No one has seen this. And right. they come away traumatized for it. I'll, you know, I don't want to traumatize anyone in my class, but I'd rather you feel that uh, that rush of adrenaline, that confusion, while I can talk you down from it. Right, and you can call a timeout too. That's sure. the beauty of it in training. Is like if Power it gets overwhelming and you can throw the switch and say, "Okay, we're stop, stop right now. Here's your safe. Look, here's your safe word. Pineapples. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to know that. <laughs> hey, I got 
It could be anything, you know, <laughs> pepperoni. Yeah, it could be anything. Unicorn but blood. but I don't know. that signals a stop to the exercise and everybody stops what they're doing and right. we we turn the lights on and the sound comes out, okay, what happened? Mm-hmm. Where are you at right now? And you can kind of use that as a teachable moment. Yeah, the whole thing should be. So a if you're moment. not so there is a big case for high fidelity simulation and stress inoculation and you know, we need to be doing this at the entry level. Yeah, I think so. So why don't we, let's go back and talk about some of, one of the things that we all, that we've all been through with this and let's talk about debriefings. Yes, let's do that. Let's talk about the, the, the myth of the debrief, the debrief, because (laughs) no, very few people do these, very few places do this right. Very few places address this. It's a good tool, but I feel like you say very few, like it's not any of them. Like there's, I have not been in an organization. I've been, you know, I've, I've worked with or worked through a few organizations in my career and I have yet to have someone conduct a debriefing correctly. And when I say correctly, I mean like I wasn't, you know, there's not a follow-up. There's no um, like addressing the, the, the current feeling versus what it is that we're looking to, to have at one point or another, how that kind of trauma will change me at one point or another. Basically, I'm given a worksheet and told not to go to a bar. don't spend a whole paycheck at your local watering hole fill this worksheet out to tell me what your feelings look like and then you're you're fine and then get back on the road because i've got calls holding (laughs) are you available are you available yet uh you had five minutes right that's enough yeah you feel good right i mean and that happens i mean i remember one place i worked where we did have a pediatric code and we brought the the kid in and it was you know full court press you know intubation io Mm -hmm. we're working the whole thing you know and you know, you're in the back of the truck afterwards and you're cleaning it out and, and, you know, they're like, okay, uh, you got another call holding. Like, yeah, whenever you're ready. Yeah. Whenever you're ready. Um, I'm not ready. I don't know if I'm ready. Yet. I'm not going to be ready. But EMS is the only emergency service that does that. Yeah. You know, no, you're not wrong. And that's the thing is that we are the only, well, we're also the only, you know, industry that is call driven. If you think about it. You know, fire and police don't look at their board and say, you know, this person just went through something. They have to get back out there. Yeah. There's resources for, you know, fire uh, fire departments can can come off a call, especially if it's traumatic or whatever it is, and go out of service. They can reset they themselves. They do all the time. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's a great model. I right. think that you should be able to go home, uh, go home, uh, go back to your station and get out of your uniform and clean yourself and find something to eat and find a way to get grounded and talk to people if that's what you want to do and that kind of thing. Um and we don't have that. In, and in even EMS. that shows, you know, even the 45, 30 to 45 minutes just mm-hmm. to go back to wash your face, wash your hands, you know, sit and have a have, you know, a non-alcoholic beverage because you're on duty. Right. Maybe get a sandwich and just sit with your crew and just like, OK, how's there? That was good. You know, you can talk over things. That's simple debriefing. That's a simple way to do it. Yeah. And it does show that that does help people cope. Yeah, give them a break. Let them come back down to some kind of reality mm-hmm. where, you know, getting back on a, a, a rig for another exposure is is feasible at that point. Yeah. Police, police officers do it, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And in the law enforcement world, you know, if they're a shooting, a critical incident, a lot of times, you know, it's OK. Hey, you're done for the day. Yeah. You know, you're going to you're going to go out of service. We're going to take you off the road, um, you know, go home, get a good night's sleep, you know take a shower, get yourself cleaned up. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, you know, take a couple of days off and then you're going to talk to somebody before you come back. I think it's also, uh, 
especially for police officers, especially for a critical incident, that mandated counseling before you come back to make sure that you're in a good mental space. Not just talking to, like, I think that you should talk to your peers and your team and all that other stuff whenever it is that you feel comfortable doing so. But police officers definitely have that part right, where they're going to tell you, you're not coming back in uniform until you see a, a, a counselor. And that's a recent development. I mean, I, I, I do know from the law enforcement world that it was not always that way. Okay. You, know, you were expected to harden up and, you know, go deal with your job. And, you know, it's it's really they, they've come pretty far because yeah, they've had the evolution there. That's, well, because they've fantastic. had a lot of high profile things. I mean, you know, where they did officers didn't deal with their stress and they have a, they have a suicide problem, too. Yeah. And every officer has a ready made way to, to end his life. I'm sure. You know, and, and then, that's you know, we we told about how we deal with all the tragedy or whatever, but like police officers, are the first people on scene, correct. typically. And and one of the things, like if you talk to police officers, and you know, I have on occasion, <laughs> once uh, or twice, <laughs> once or twice, um, they do, you know, believe it or not, as big and tough and strong as they are, they get a feeling of help helplessness. I think the the big and tough and strong aspect of things is what keeps them helpless. Yeah, it's the stigma now. It's well, the, you I mean, know, like I, I you're, should be able you're, to deal with this. You know, you talk to uh, you talk to a cop or trooper. You know, a trooper. A lot of times, they most of them, if they've worked the road for any period of time, they have they have a situation. You know, they'll tell you like, "Hey, pulled up on an accident. Car was completely engulfed in flames. People were inside. Nothing oh. I could do, and I had to wait for the fire guys to get there because I couldn't get near the car. Right. And they have to watch that. Yeah, they have to listen to that screaming, not only on the scene, but then in their heads. Yeah. For years to come, and that's right. crazy. And, and, you know, that's the stuff that we're trying to deal. Like, how do you deal with it at the scene? How do you deal with it after the scene? Mm -hmm. But, you know, we don't do it well at all in EMS. No. At least, at least those other services are actually addressing it to a point. Yeah, to a point. Now, we're not saying they, we're not saying they do it perfectly. No, but at least there's an addressing happening. Right. I mean, at least they, they take a look at the, at the problem and the, the damage that's causing to its providers. That's really the problem is that at one point or another, they have, they have placed, the well-being of their providers over the people that they serve as they should. Right. But we have to give them tools to yeah. get themselves over this and through it. And, you know, I, I, I remember a call of my own. You know, I had a very good, had a very good friend die suddenly. Mm. When we were all on the call. Um, it was a tragedy. It was absolutely devastating. Um, and I can say with a lot of certainty that nothing was ever the same after this. I think it's a good point to address, too, is that at one point or another, trauma changes us. Yeah. And we, we have this ideal of you've gone through something, but you're going to come back to your previous baseline. Nope. You're never going to be the same person. And no one really wants to, to acknowledge that. There is a point where trauma changes the brain. So it changes you as a person. And I think that that's, that's something that we don't address either, is that you know, we kind of teach the idea of wellness to like the middle of the class. There's the people who will or won't be subject to trauma. There's people who are naturally resilient and people who are subject to it. Mm -hmm. But we don't acknowledge either side of that. We just kind of go, trauma will happen right in the middle of the class, and then we leave it alone. But the idea that the, and I think it's where the stigma starts to to find its roots in, is that trauma changes you as as an individual. So you either become resilient to it, which can be damaging, or you are someone who is going to leave the field because you've had too much. Right. I mean, it's we yeah, we do teach the middle. We we don't. And, and again, we're not addressing those things. We we don't say we don't go into classes and tell people, hey, look, this is what you're going to see. This is the stuff you're going to notice. This is what's going to affect you. Mm-hmm. 
we almost don't want to talk about it. It's almost kind of like, yeah, you'll find out on your own. Yeah, but when you do find out on your own, there's no way for us to, to work through it. Right. That sucks. Right. <laughs> I mean, look, I can tell you after after the incident that I had, you know, with my friend, you know, dying, mm-hmm. none of us handled it the right, the way we should have. It was, you want to talk about a laundry list of what not to do? Oh, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And it changed us. It, yeah. You know, just that, even to the point of, you know, there were people, I remember people being resentful that they weren't there or people resentful of people that weren't there at the scene. Yeah, that's a little twisted. You know, like, oh, you weren't there or, you know, I was there. You know, like, people... We'll talk about that for a second. Trauma becomes a club, too. Oh, yeah. You know, like, you're just, you know, oh, you weren't there, you wouldn't understand. Like, eh, uh, maybe. Did you need to be there in order to not get this? Is that what this is? Yeah, do you, do you really have to be, you know, there to get it? Yeah. You know, and then there's the the other the whole other side of that is the people who say they were at something and they weren't and actually they were. there. I mean, that's a whole nother. That's a whole different side of psychology that we're we're not. Are touching. we prepared to touch no, that? No, 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 not not with my three credits in college psych. <laughs> that's not happening today. No, thank you. Walk away. Um, but yeah, there are those there. There's that side of our personalities that come out where that self-aggrandizement happens too like you know either you were on the scene and experienced the trauma and now you don't deal with it well or you were on the scene you experienced the trauma and you know well you know this was going to happen anyway and you know i couldn't help him or whatever it is but like it doesn't it's not a healthy way of uh, of expressing that it's more of a like like putting the blame on yourself like kind of in indirectly does that make sense yeah it does it does kind of ish ish sort of i could see that okay so let's so we talk about we're not teaching people right we're not teaching people how to cope we're not mm-hmm. teaching we're not screening people who are maybe not as let's not call it resilience let's call it adaptability okay can they adapt that. to that constant stress of dealing with the the after effects of the echoes of this stuff okay um and then we get into situations where we start seeing people the those other people yes the ones that are going down a bad way, path mm-hmm. so to speak not not a bad path like they're becoming villains in a comic book movie but they're going on they're going into a dark place right and we do a terrible job of intervening well they're you know i think the the mindset there and i had a, a an incident where this this kind of happened to me um i call it like the others we are not like the others in our field you know what i mean there's the the people who are going through something and we respond to their call their suicide their uh attempt whatever it is and you know oh we see all the signs that they had been going down that road and how could no one ever see this but like if i sit next to you for 40 hours on on an ambulance and i'm thinking of killing myself i'm showing signs too but because i have training and i have experience and i should know what these signs are of course i'm not suicidal Right. Of course I can handle myself. I had a, um, it was two years ago or so, um, I was going through a pretty stressful time and I woke up one morning and I could not stop thinking about killing myself. It was just an uncontrollable thought. I had no desire to die, but the urge and the thought was persistent to the point where it's, you know, anywhere I went in my house, it was, you know, if I killed myself this way, this is how I would be found and oh, wouldn't that be terrible, but I'll do it anyway. I went furniture shopping and I was looking at a couch and the only thing I could think of is how hard it would be to get my blood out of the fabric. But 
because I'm a paramedic, because I deal with people on a consistent basis, the family member that I was with considered me someone that could handle those things. So I was left alone, especially like, in, and you know, my, my husband has, you know, his own you know registered weapons and all that other stuff, but she left me alone in a place where I had access to those. Thank God I didn't have that, you know, strong urge or actually know how to operate those weapons. But because I had exposure and because I had training, she thought that even though I was having those thoughts, I wouldn't do anything. And it's an assumption that we make for all of our partners, for all of our, our, our colleagues that, you know, she knows that this is something that, you know, she shouldn't do. She knows how to get help. So why didn't, why doesn't she? She'll just do it herself. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a lot of it is that well, you, you know what to look for. You know when to tap out, so to speak and right. say, Hey, I'm not handling this on my own. And, and you don't No. Um, you know, I think what trauma does is it's, it's the, it's the freezing water in the crack, mm, whatever, whatever, whatever was there magnifies. Mm-hmm. Um, so if these impulses were there, or if these thoughts were there, that what the, what the repetitive effect of trauma does is I think it freezes in that crack and you make the crack bigger Yep. and it over magnifies and what you magnifies what you are. Yeah. You know, and then you have the Grand Canyon. Right. If you had a if you had a tiny little bit of anxiety or a little bit of OCD mm-hmm. and you go through trauma, you're going to find you're going to see a lot more of that behavior. Yeah. You know, if you kind of thought like, geez, you know, maybe what would it be like? You know, it's going to magnify. It's going to magnify over and over again until. And that's the thing is that I don't I'm never going to profess to know what it is that drives someone to take their own life because I'm not in their shoes. But if understanding that that urge can come up. And then I, sh- I show signs of it and all that. I'm putting all those those vibes out where, you know, like I start giving away my stuff and I'm very quiet. And my personality changes and all that other stuff. Um, and the people around me assume that this is just the way that I handle things because I'm a trained professional. Then when that crack gets bigger, how do we know when to call for help? How do we know when I'm supposed to say no on my side, seeing you as a, as a, as a, as a partner or something like that? want to do those things or show those signs that you are kind of going down that road when do i say this isn't right yeah it's a tough it's a tough question it it's really i don't know if we have an answer for it i think that we do though i think that at one point or another the education system has to has to step up and show us what it looks like when our colleagues show intent you know and there are you know there are people in in both our lives that we've seen you know attempt or, or, or succeed in suicide um, that have been spoken to or whatever it is. And sometimes people are really good at hiding stuff. Oh, yeah. But at that point, if the talk is merited, if you're looking at them and saying, are you okay? And they're still telling you yes, but you don't think so. When do you step back? When does that training kick in and say, these are signs. This is something that we should be looking at anyway. If this was a patient of mine, I would be insisting they go to the hospital and talk to somebody and they should have a 72 hour. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting if you, because we're afraid, I I think we're afraid of, you know, causing more trouble for somebody who's also, who's already in a, you know, maybe a rough situation or maybe kind of dealing with some stuff. And you're really kind of cognizant of the, if I pull the trigger on this, I'm going to, I'm going to cause them a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. They're going to lose time from work. They, they might have issues, you know, legally with, you know, reputation wise reputation and things like that and you know we got to get over that because mental illness is you know you and i both really like it's just an illness yeah it's just in your brain Mm -hmm. it's not 
any different than high blood pressure, than diabetes, than any other thing that's going on inside your body at the time. Right. Um, but we don't look at it that way. No, we look at it in a stigmatized view. And that's where it is, is that, you know, I'm going to pull the trigger on this person and say that they need help. I'm going to call a crisis team for my partner at work or whatever it is. And not only are you looked at as the villain for having destroyed this person, but you're also, you know, not really liked by the person themselves. Now you've lost a partner and you've lost uh, respect from the people around yeah, you. Yeah, and kind of you know, it's funny, like if, you know, if your partner got on the truck and, you know, they had they had GI symptoms and they just, had, they were feverish and they looked crappy and you went to the supervisor and said, look, dude, he's got to go home. He's just, he's sick. Right. Nobody'd look at you wrong. No. But for a mental illness, like, oh, he's got a problem. It's like, oh, look what you're doing. You're going to screw this guy over. You're going to screw this person over. You're going to do this. You're not a, you're not a good partner. Oh it's almost God, the dichotomy of we're not, we're not a, we're not a good partner. Uh-huh. And it's hard. And sometimes we have to look into these things. And sometimes we have to just ask the questions. I mean, yeah. I remember with the, you know, with the colleague of mine who, who killed himself and he was going through some personal things and he was, you know, there's marriage things and there was you know obviously you know he was uh, he was life things and work and he was he was struggling but the last conversation i had with him because he was on the other end of the week that i was you know it's kind of like that you know you see somebody what your friends but you see each other once every three days and you know it's like whatever (laughs) oh it's wednesday so i remember having a discussion with him and i I knew things were going on like hey man how are you how are you doing and he looked at me and he, he had these like kind of tired eyes and, you know, he's like, hey, you know, it's hard, but I'm I'm doing OK. I, I think I'm going to be all right. We're, you know, I'm working this out and I'm doing this. I'm like, OK, man, you know, that's good. You know, just let me know if there's anything I can do or you want to just talk or whatever. Come hang out. And he goes, oh, that's great. You know, and I was like and I walked away and I was like, I got in my car and drove. I'm like, yeah, he seems like he's doing all right. Mm-hmm. And two days later. I get a phone call at like 6 a.m. on a day off. And, you know, that's not good. That's not great. And I get the news that he, he killed himself. And I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. Like, what happened? And sometimes we conceal it really well because we're trained, because we know what people look for. Yeah. And we have to be cognizant of that. You I know, think, again, that goes back to training. We're just like we people. do with like that middle-aged guy who doesn't want to tell you in front of his wife that he's got chest pain and he's scared shitless. Right. You know, you got to be able to suss that out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing is that like, you know, we teach, we, this is the thing that we teach now is that mental health is for other people and we don't, we don't fall under those things. So when we have those symptoms and we have that, you know, that instance that happens with us that may or may not put us over the edge, since we don't have a tool to manage ourselves, we know that we're going to step towards the idea of hiding it because it's not accepted. And some of us are really good at that. Oh, some of us are really good, mm-hmm. just like our patients. They're really good at hiding things. They're really good at, at concealing. We have to look at these things. So what, what behaviors, then, should we look for as far as people that we may just see on shift that would kind of signify what it is that you know shows us that maybe they're not doing so great? I don't know. I, I think when you just start, you start putting isolated things together, you seeing, you know, some self-sabotage stuff, mm-hmm. um, you know, people trying to control their mental state so hard that it's kind of their job slipping. And, you know, right. you see the somebody who's been through elsewhere. trauma and, you know, now all of a sudden, you know, things are going, things are missing or they're, they're 
they're miscalculating things or, you know, right. things are happening on calls and you're kind of like, that's not what's going on. I think we need to pay more attention to those things. Okay. So then the idea that the stigma that, that comes out, not only with the, you know, the presence of mental illness or whatever it is, if we're talking about self-sabotage, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say this, then suicide is the ultimate self-sabotage. This is something that they've just lost control and there's no way out. Yeah. I think that I think that's a good way to look at it. It's it's just the final it's the final pathway. Mm-hmm. You know, it's everything else has just not worked. I'm lo- I don't have control over this. I don't have I don't have control over my work. I don't have control over my personal life. I don't have these these feel I don't have control over these feelings. Mm-hmm. And that adds to worth. So at one point or another, I'm not worth being here because I can't do X, Y, Z. Right. Right. So I guess the biggest problem that I have with the idea of mental health and stigma is that we keep saying that people who have committed suicide are weak or that they're selfish. And I don't know if we should say that, that they're way crazy anymore. or that they're crazy. I mean, that's are you crazy or are you desperate? Is it a rational? Is it a is it a rational solution to a, a believed unsolvable problem? And I think at that point, if you don't have the propensity or you're not going through the same stresses, then asking if it's rational is not fair. Because it's not rational to me. I don't want to die. Right. But for someone who is going through enough stress that is taking apart their worth and their their thought that they belong, then maybe it is rational. Maybe this is just something that they've come to. So I don't think we should look at this as something that makes them selfish anymore. Yeah, you're going to hurt other people, but you have hurt yourself or you have been hurting yourself for so long <coughs> that now you're desperate for it to end. So suicide isn't a, isn't a selfish act. It's a desperate act. Absolutely. And I, I think we have to change how we look at it. I think we have to change how we treat it. I think we have to stop, you know, making providers and patients, mm-hmm. you know, feel like they're like they're doing something that's just, oh, you're stupid. I can't believe you would do such a thing. Yeah. You know, look, I can't believe people do a, do a lot of things. We're in a business where we deal with people who don't make great decisions. <laughs> Well, Every time someone honest. says something like that, I think about like the guy who like chugged Nyquil, but then like drove his four wheeler over a cliff. Like, what told you that that was a good idea? No, Idiot. You know, or you know, th- we've talked about this. You know, this this compassion fatigue, mm-hmm. and you know, it's a big problem in our in our industry in our world because, again, trauma, this repetitive stuff. It's just we have to break this cycle. So then, when we when we talk about trauma, if we're talking about the idea that like something's going to set me off. We have to kind of also acknowledge the fact that my trauma is not what's going to set you off and no one knows what those triggers are going to be. That's good. So then how are we going to prepare ourselves beforehand? We know that this is an industry that's going to foster a traumatic situation. There's going to be someone's bad day that we go, that we're going to get wrapped up in. So at one point or another, if it's not the fact that if we have to acknowledge the fact that their bad day will affect my day, how is it? And the idea that it's not going to is just ridiculous. So we're going to kind of work around that entirely. How do we prepare ourselves for the recovery before it happens? You've stumped me. I have you. You have me done. In, you have me in a I'm boxed in. So here's the. Uh, so the, how would you do it? How do you, how do you work with it? Let me ask you this. How do you work with it? How do you deal with a trauma? So I still don't deal with the trauma well. I am okay. I am a I am in this industry for close to 15 years and I still suck at this. But the idea that I don't have um, some kind of mechanism of control is 
no longer part of my um, dogma. I don't know the phrase for this, but it's it's not part of my uh, my mental health. Essentially, is that okay. I have to understand that at one point or another, someone's always there for me. I've made my own um, support system. You know, I go to I go home to my husband. He's in the same uh, industry, so he knows the kind of trauma that I'm going through. Um, my mother is an EMT. She's seen the stuff that I've seen, so I know that I can talk to her about it. I have a partner who understands that, you know, sometimes we just have to vent it out in the truck, like that kind of thing. You surround yourself with people who you can be open with. Um, and if you can't be open with them, you bring them to the point where you're allowed to be. Because honestly, if we're not there for each other, who are we there for? Okay. Um, the catchphrase of the uh, in the industry right now is mindfulness, which I think we should be... Uh, practicing on a daily basis. There is no other place to be but where you are. So letting yourself wander back into, you know, the parent who's screaming over her dead infant is, you know, easy. And it's, you know, it takes a lot of discipline to, to find yourself a way to come back to the present. But we have to practice that. And I don't think we teach that, nor do we enforce it. No, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, mindfulness is really good and meditation, some of this some of the stuff that's out there, these are good things. Mm-hmm. These are good tools and we don't teach it. Um, you know, we should be. What about like recovery strategies? Do you have something that you like you know that you've you know you're going to run into like a trauma or something like that and there's something that you have to do afterwards in order to make yourself feel better? I, I know that, you know, I think just sitting sometimes in a quiet place is good. I, you know, like, I like have a cup of coffee, have a, you know, have something to eat, you right. know, just food is very grounding. Food brings you right back down to earth. That's yeah. I supposed li- to do it. Even just a small thing. I mean, you know, I started carrying in like power bars and water yeah. and iced tea, you know, like in, in bottles and just Kevin and Mike used to get milkshakes, you know, That's their protein thing. stuff, you know, just to, just to kind of come down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because you want to act, you know, for me, it was, you know, here's an interesting thing. When I, when I was, when I was sick, when I had my issues right. um, and I wasn't taking care of them, mm-hmm. um, I actually wanted to be there on those things. Yeah. Because it was the, it was the it one took, place you had. It took me out of my problems and my f- anxiety to sense. deal with somebody else's problem. Right. Well, that's the, the and I loved being over busy else. and I loved being on calls and I loved it when it was bad. And mm-hmm. I loved to be in the middle of stuff because I didn't have to think about my stuff. Yeah, that's a I mean, it's a it's and a common it's a common coping contro- mechanism. And until I learned how to control it and learned how to work with my my disease. Mm-hmm. And it is a disease. It's just like high blood pressure. I mean, right. and it really is. And the cure is the same thing. I take a pill every day. Yeah, and that's yeah, the other and, thing is that like there's a stigma around. And it's not around, as bad. It's such we're so stigmatized. Like you yeah, know. there's a stigmatized there's a stigmatization around medication. Yep. No one no one gets on me because I take insulin. Right. It's not my fault my pancreas doesn't work. It's also not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> it's also yeah, not my fault it's that a, like oh you weak person <laughs> your pancreas ugh oh you can't make your own insulin you no but before we get into that like my thing was always you know but. Once I started treating this and once I started recognizing it and realizing, look, it wasn't going to ever get better. This is where I was going to be. Mm-hmm. And I found a good per- and I found a good doctor who, you know, basically uh, said to me, look, this is who you are. Your brain is wired differently now. Yeah. But if you do this every day, you will be fine. Yeah. Come to terms. With so the why are you fighting? It? Why are you fighting it so hard? Yeah. Why do you think, you know, why, why do you think you have to beat this? You know what? Why is it that you think that you have to go back? 
I don't know. Why can't we just accept the fact that this is something that has changed you and get to know the person that you've become? Yeah. I think that's a, that's a perfect Because I'll tell you the truth. I think I'm, I'm, much, I'm a much better person now than I was 10 years ago. I mean, I liked you before, but you're, you're, you're fine now. Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I think I'm better. I mean, but but it's true. We feel like we have to go back to this magical place before all this started. And you just, that that negates everything else you do. Yeah. Everything in your life. Think about think about physical injury. You know, yeah. I hurt my back because I work in EMS. Mm-hmm. Um, of course you did. Of course I did. Uh, but like because of that injury, my, my legs don't work that great. Um, and while I was recovering, it was the idea that I had to come back to 100% function instead of learning to adapt to the injury and still perform a duty oh yeah um and that's you know when it came to like the physical side of things and i could see the progress and i could see how it was that i was uh, operating even outside of my norm that's when it set in but during recovery it's oh my god i have to get back to exactly who i was before this and you're never going to it's be. not possible it there's took, an injury there you know what it took me years to do that because i was injured in the line of duty and it was a pretty bad injury i mean mm-hmm. you know it was in the newspapers it was this whole big thing and you know, I was, you know, I'm trying to get back and I'm trying to get back to a hundred percent. And I didn't, it took me years to realize I ain't ever going to be a hundred percent. No. And you know what? That's okay. Yeah. I'm going to move forward. I think for us I to stop say, looking back. Yeah. Well, the, the stop looking back is a huge thing too. Cause if you don't, you know, the idea of where you were comfortable and then where you are now being uncomfortable, the, the, the present feels like it's never going to end. But until you kind of accept the fact that it doesn't have to end, this is just your new normal, maybe that's fine. And you can get past it by recognizing the new normal. Yeah. The new normal sometimes is better than you were before. Yeah. And sometimes the new normal doesn't suck as much as, th- as you think it's going to. Like, it's different. Sure. I still can't pick my foot up. Okay. I just use the other foot. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but like I say whatever, like, oh, I just adapted. Like, it took me five years to get there. Yeah. And so, you don't realize that it takes, it takes no. years. And we were like, you know, we're in this go-go society where it's like, oh, you got to be better tomorrow. Oh yeah. You know, we, we have, you know, we sit here and we, you know, we'll, we'll laugh about the unreal expectations of medicine of patients with the medical field. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, we laugh at like a TV episode where somebody goes into cardiac arrest and then, you know, the next scene they're sitting it up in bed with hours. their sitting in bed with, you know, with their hospital tray and everything's when everybody's <laughs> laughing around them. I can't, I can't eat or talk because I had. I have jello because I was intubated for 17 hours. Right. Listen, and, lady. And, and we laugh at that. Like, it's completely unrealistic. It's totally but, unrealistic. But then when it comes to us, we're like, oh, yeah, walk it off. You'll be fine. You know, it's like. Yeah. Put and, some Windex on it. And again, you know, this trauma affects your brain. It, mm-hmm. You know, they spent a mi- they probably spent a million dollars all told. You know, after 13 surgeries with me, multiple hospitalizations. You expensive. They spent a million dollars on my leg. All right. They spent nothing on my head. That is the greatest comparison I think we could have come out with this. And the head was the worst injury. Yeah. And it brought you to, yeah, it brought you to a place where you had to escape through other people's tragedy. Yeah. That's nuts. And had to deal with my own things and the the crack got bigger. And and Mm -hmm. finally, I just, I decided to pave over the crack and it's one little pill a day. So then is it, is mental toughness the same as mental stability? I don't know. I mean, I, I think, I don't think so. I, Cause I think you can be, you can be stable and not tough. Okay. I think it's, I think it's mentally adaptable and I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a level. I think it's a, it's a waveform. 
Okay. It's you're up, you're down. You're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. You're always going to have something. I think that that's what stability means, though, is that you're able to be flexible. I think the idea of mental toughness and staying rigid to the fact that, you know, you've experienced something, but you're always fine. That's what kills us. That's really what takes away from from any validity that we have in any of our feelings. Oh, God. No, I think that's a good point. I think that's the best that's the best explanation I have for it. Boom. Boom. Done. (laughs) So this is going to be a topic that we are going to go back and forth on. um, And in the future, we're going to bring on some other guests and we're going to talk about um, more of our experiences, not as much as a look at me and tell me how great I am. But, you know, this is out there. It should be out there. There's more of you out there like us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can all help each other to go forward. I think it's the thing too, is that we're, we are our best resource and we're so scared of what it would mean to use that resource that we just don't do it. And maybe it's, that's, that's the first hurdle to get over. We just don't have to do that anymore. I think the first, uh, yeah, I think you're, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, boom, it's like the first thing is stop being afraid of this. Yeah. Stop Stop feeling like you're weak or you're not as, you're not as good as the other person who looks to be like they can handle it because they can't handle it either. Yeah. They're just handling it differently. And I think the difference in how we handle things and the more we talk about that, uh, the more likely we are to establish some kind of, you know, hard and fast method to, to not only get the people who are coming in as far as like entry level goes, but also to help the people who are already out, uh, out there. We have two levels of doing this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think don't be afraid. Yeah, don't be afraid. Hashtag don't be afraid. Do better. Do don't better. Be afraid. We're just collecting hashtags. We're just throwing at this it out point. there. <laughs> so we're going to come back to this. We're going to talk about things. Um, you know, please comment. You know, let us know how you think, what you yeah. think. Let us know what's going on with you. Um, email us. Feel, email you know, us. Feel free to share. Share your stories with us because honestly, there's there's something to be learned from everybody. And uh, you know, of course, Ed would tell me I like. Like, like comment, comment share. share. Ed's at school. We don't know what's going on. Ed, Ed's in Antigua waiting for the hurricane. Dad, dad left, so I don't know uh, what to do with myself. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like, comment, uh, share us. Uh, you know, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Twitter uh, all the podcast outlets: um, Google Play, Spotify, iTunes. If you don't know any of the of the places to find us on social media, go back and listen to the other podcast. Ed <laughs> says them in a whole list. Every time he goes to like goes away for school, there's a hurricane. So good luck, Ed. Hopefully that works out for you well. Yeah. Good luck, Ed. We're, we're hoping, we're you know, thoughts and prayers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so for the Overrun Podcast, I'm Dan Schwester. I'm Anna Ryan. And uh, take care of yourself. <laughs>